So we are looking at the doctrine of salvation, and uh, I've tried to speak of the general approach to the subject, and uh, I've said that we should put the big things first, grace and faith and the person of Jesus, and then we begin to, to look at the details, the things that happen when we first put our faith in Jesus, or we come to faith, things that happen as we believe, we repent, we convicted of sin, we put our faith in Jesus, the immediate blessings we have, regeneration and justification, adoption, all these things that happen to us. Now, the things then that we still have to to consider, um, I would say uh, are mainly three. I don't know that we'll get through all three, but uh, I can mention them. The Bible's teaching about assurance of salvation. We are meant to come to assurance of salvation, and that's uh, what I want to speak on now. And then there is the Bible's teaching about security of salvation. As I understand it, we are secure in salvation. Our initial salvation cannot be lost. (coughs) (coughs) I think we can um, lose salvation in some other ways in terms of reward. Sometimes the word salvation means reward. I think we can lose reward. I think we can... Uh, lose the blessings of God somewhat along the course of life. But our basic status in Christ, I, I hold, can't be lost. I think the New Testament teaches it can't be lost, and so on. So there is the, the question of our security of salvation, although that also leads to, to the question of how we handle the warnings of Scripture. There are many warnings in Scripture, and you can't uh, think about the subject of security of salvation without thinking about the, the warnings of Scripture. And uh, and then lastly, and I deliberately put it last, and I think it's where it should come in at the end. Lastly, there is the biblical teaching about predestination. Logically, it might be first. Logically, salvation begins with the plan of God. Um, but you, I don't think you you should come at the teaching of salvation as it were pursuing a kind of predestinarian scheme. Uh, and Paul doesn't put it at the beginning of his letters anywhere. And uh, I don't think we should. It's something which comes in at the end. It looks back over the entire teaching and says, well, actually, all of this is part of a great plan of God. And it's because it's part of a great plan of God that we may be sure that salvation will work itself out. So that's the way in which I'm going in the course of uh, tonight, to today, to tonight and tomorrow. And uh, we'll see how that leads us. For the moment, then, let's focus on... Assurance of salvation. And in the Bible, there are three basic ways in which we come to assurance of salvation. And I put them in a certain order, and the order is is a deliberate order. There are three ways in which we come to assurance according to Scripture. And one, the, the first one is, we come to assurance just because of the promises of God in Jesus. We're just told that he who has the Son has life. We're just told that if we believe, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. If we put our faith in Jesus, we do not perish. We have everlasting life. Our our initial assurance just comes by believing the promise of salvation. And uh, that gives us our our initial assurance. We say, well, I believe I'm saved, because he says, if I believe I'm saved, and I believe. So I must be saved. It's a kind of logical, obvious uh, conclusion that arises from our faith in Jesus. And that's the first way of salvation, of uh, assurance. We come to assurance by our faith in the promises of God. 
if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's a promise given to Christians, but it can be used again in the matter of assurance. We just believe what God tells us. And if we believe that uh, Jesus is raised from the dead, we believe that he's the Lord, we believe he died upon the cross, we're trusting in him, we're trusting in nothing else other than him, then we can know God promises. God, Jesus says, whoever comes to me, I will in no wise send away. I'll in no wise cast out. It, it means both of those things. So that's the first way of assurance in Scripture. We come to our assurance simply by faith in the blood of Christ. There's an old hymn that puts it like this. You know, know the hymn that goes, I, I need no other argument, I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. That, that old wonderful hymn. And that's the first way of assurance, that, that the blood of Jesus Christ is enough for us. So we are trusting in that cross. Why, why should we have any kind of doubt? That's the first way of assurance. Uh, we ought to have other ways. We ought to, to doubly confirm our salvation and so on, but that in itself is where we start. We start just by believing the promises of God. But then secondly, there is a second way of assurance, and that is the sealing or the baptism with the Spirit. And I said a little bit about the baptism of the Spirit in, in Derbyshire. Um, the baptism with the Spirit is, I maintain, something experiential. It's not a kind of secret giving of the Spirit. It is when the Spirit is consciously given to us and uh, it, it seals our salvation. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, Having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. And then he goes on to say, which is, verse 14, which is a foretaste of our inheritance. We have a little bit of heaven. We have a little bit of the heavenly reward, the heavenly glory in this life. And that in itself ought to convince you that this is something experiential. The gift of the Spirit is something which you experience. It's not some secret thing. Uh, in the last uh, century or so, um, the teaching has come in that, that, that you can have the Spirit, as it were, under the level of consciousness. You don't know that you've received the Spirit, you just take it, that you have the Spirit. I refer to that phrase, taking it by faith, which came in in the 1880s or thereabouts, and that the teaching came in that every Christian's got the Spirit, which is true, but um, the way in which people put it, they are talking about something non-experiential. You don't experience anything, you just take it, you have the Spirit. But it's not anything experiential. But uh, in the Bible, surely there is such a thing as an experience of the Spirit, as well as anything that might be, as it were, unconscious and below the level of what you're aware of. There's also surely in the Bible something which is experiential. Nobody could have been present at the day of Pentecost without knowing that they had been given something they didn't have before. It's experiential. You can't have a foretaste of heaven, a down payment of heavenly glory without knowing about it. You can't receive power you should receive power when the Spirit comes upon you. You can't receive power without knowing about it. You can't have joy unspeakable. You can't have an anointing which lubricates you, makes you flow easily. These things are all experiential terms. So to have a non-experiential receiving of the Spirit, and that's all there is, surely does not fit the 
New Testament. And it implies talking as though the receiving of the Spirit is conversion. But that's, that, that won't stand up to examination. When Jesus received the Spirit, was he getting saved? When Jesus received the Spirit in, in the River Jordan at his baptism, was he getting born again or having his sins forgiven or coming to faith? No, no sure. What was happening to Jesus at the River Jordan? Well, the answer is he was receiving power. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to preach. He was receiving power. It wasn't his conversion or anything like it. Um, so that tells you what the gift of the Spirit is. And then what happens on the day of Pentecost? Those disciples had been disciples for a long time. They'd come to faith. They were living a godly life much of the time. They'd heard all of the teaching and preaching of Jesus. Uh, Jesus says, you're all clean. He breathed on them. John chapter 20 said, receive the Holy Spirit. He already received the resurrection power of the Holy Spirit. Now there comes something else. You should receive power when the Spirit comes upon you. What was happening on the day of Pentecost? Were they getting born again again? Was this kind of conversion again? What was happening to them? Surely no one's getting born again. No one's coming to faith. None of those 120 are coming to faith. Surely what's happening to them is they are receiving power. And uh, if that's what's happening to them, well, that's what happens to us. That is the definition of the gift of the Spirit. You may say, oh, well, the reason why that happened to them, that they were saved first and then received power, is because it was kind of crossing over from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant, and, uh, and uh, it was a bit sort of special. But nowadays we get all in one go. But I answer... There only needs to be one person in the history of the world who's first born again and then given the Spirit to prove that they're different. If there's only one, one case, in that one case, when he was born again first and then received the Spirit, what did he get in the second bit? When he was born again and then he gets the Spirit, what extra was it, was it that came? What is the dif- differentia of receiving the Spirit that he did not have when he was born again? Even if there's only one case, you still, you still have the question coming up. The answer is it's receiving power. It's the spirit of adoption. And we cry, Abba, Father. It's knowing our salvation. It's having joy unspeakable. It's being lubricated, anointed with, with a kind of a oil that gets us to flow and move easily in the things of God. And also I want to ask the question, uh, this is Dr. Lloyd-Jones' question. Dr. Lloyd-Jones used to say, with such people, used to say, well, if you've got it, where is it? You've received power, you've got it, you've got it conversion. Well, where is it then? Where is this power? You've received joy, unspeakable and full of glory. Well, where, where is it? To which the answer is, well, maybe I've got it, but it's not functioning. To which you might say, well, does it matter whether I say it needs to be functioning or whether I say you need the Spirit? Or which, does it matter which way I put it? You certainly haven't got it just yet. You certainly something which you need. Do you have it? You, you need it. Whichever way you verbalize it, whichever way you put it in theological language. There is such a thing as living with joy unspeakable. There's such a thing as having a lubrication. There's such a thing as receiving power. There's such a thing as having the spirit of adoption, crying, Abba, Father. Those things exist. They're there in the scriptures. Uh, You put it in whichever language you like. Do you have it? If you don't have it, don't you admit you need it? And maybe not give it a name. Maybe not call it the baptism with the Spirit. It is the baptism with the Spirit. The baptism of the Spirit is surely something experiential. I'm very careful not to standardize things too much. The older I get, 
in the Christian life, the less I wish to standardize things. The more I want God to work however he wants to do it. The more I allow variety, the more I admit that people get to the same point along different routes. I'm not making rules for anybody. And I do that less and less as life goes on. I don't care how you get there as long as you get there. I don't care what route you you come along. I don't even mind too much what theology you use as long as you get to the point where you're experiencing rivers of living water. If any person thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. This he said of the Spirit that those who believe should receive. And uh, I don't care how you get there, as long as you get there, as long as you know that you have the spirit of adoption, that it's the easiest thing in the world for you to call God Father. You, 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 you can't not call God Father. You, you, you know he's your Father. You, you find you, when you pray, you do have a spirit of adoption. You call upon him as your Father, and you do so with ease. You're not struggling or pretending or trying to do something which doesn't really fit. You know you have the spirit of adoption and it empowers you. It gives you liberty. It gives you joy. It gives you boldness. You're not scared of people. You can talk to anybody anywhere. You must get to that point. I don't care how you get there as long as you get there. And if you don't know the spirit in that way, well, the Bible says if you being evil give good gifts to your children, how much more does the Heavenly Father know how to give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Luke Chapter 11, we seek him, we ask him. It's the New Testament promise. God is promising this. It's the promise of the Father. And we can go to God and we can say to the Lord, Lord, you promised. You told me you do this for me. We can plead the promise. And, and well, I'm scared to use the word demand, but we can strongly request that uh, God fulfills his promise in our lives. In the Bible, if God promises something and you're not experiencing the promise... You turn the promise into prayer. You say, well, Lord, you you promised this, and you turn it into prayer. God promises to work all things together, but they're not working all things together for you just yet. You go and you plead the promise. God promises wisdom. If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask, it'll be given to him. And you don't feel very wise at the moment, well, turn it into prayer. If if God promises all your needs will be met, my God shall meet all of your needs, but you're not finding all your needs met, turn it into prayer. Take any unfulfilled promise and turn it into prayer. And God promises you the gift of the Spirit. And if you don't know that gift in the way that you ought to, turn it into prayer and, and give God no peace until you know. It doesn't matter how you get there as long as you get there. As long as you have God's presence in your life, you can feel his touch of power, you know you're a child of God. And that is the, the second great way of assurance. And there's a difference between these two. The difference between the first one, just trusting the promises of God, and the second one is that the first one has a little bit of logic in it. You are saying to yourself, well, anybody who believes is saved. I believe, therefore I'm saved. There's a bit of of argumentation there. You're sort of deducing something. You may not feel very saved. You say, well, I know Jesus died on the cross for everybody. I know I've trusted in him, so no matter what I feel like, I'm saved because I'm trusting Jesus. You are deducing and reasoning and arguing with yourself a little bit. (coughs) So, right, you, you may do that. But in the baptism of the Spirit, there is no need of any arguing. The Spirit himself witnesses with your spirit that you are a child of God. There's nothing argumentative in it. It is a direct voice of God. I don't mean a voice in the sky, but it's a direct uh, conviction from God that you are a child, you feel a child, you're, you're crying, Abba, Father, you know that God is your Father by a direct witness of the Spirit. 
This is what made Methodism, Methodism. This is what makes every revival a real revival. This is what makes the gospel the gospel throughout the entire course of the, of the Christian church. There's power when people have assurance. There's power when people know that they're saved. There's power when there's joy and lubrication. People are sharing very freely because God is so in them and upon them. And this is the church at its best. Whenever there's revival, this all comes back. Everybody is touched with the Holy Spirit, and everybody is like this. In times of decline, it seems as though there's a sort of low level of the experience of the Spirit. And revival is when everybody is, as it were, baptized with the Spirit all at the same time. On the day of Pentecost, the, the Spirit comes down upon the whole fellowship, 120 of them, all anointed and lubricated and baptized with the Spirit. Although it's, it's not just corporate because the fire comes down upon each one of them. Remember the description. It is corporate, it is individual. The entire company are touched by God, yet each one of them also is touched by God. In revival, whole communities are touched by the power of the Holy Spirit, and yet at the same time, each one is conscious that he or she personally has been touched by the Lord. These outpourings of the Spirit, and they are the greatest way of assurance. You, you have no doubts at all. Any kind of shadow of a doubt is swept away. You have the Spirit of adoption in whom you cry, Abba, Father, God's Spirit witnesses with your spirit that you are a child of God. And we're meant to know something of this, although it's possible to be a Christian without knowing this. You don't have to say, well, I've not had this, so I'm not saved. No, no, it's possible to be a Christian without knowing this, and um, certain things seem to hold it up. If you're not clear about justification, you're, you're almost trying to half work for your salvation. It will hold up the outpouring of the Spirit. If there's to be a seal, the same, same principle as I was saying last night. If there's a, to be a seal, there's something upon which the, ste- the seal is stamped, so to speak. Having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. But if your believing is defective, you're not quite sure whether Jesus died for you and you're still trying to half work for your salvation, well, you're not going to know much joy, unspeakable and full of glory. There has to be something there for the Spirit to seal it, double it, confirm it, witness, to, witness with it. Um, so, lack of clarity with regard to the gospel can hold up the outpouring of the Spirit. And when you study the life of people like John Wesley, I wouldn't like to say that Wesley wasn't saved before the 24th of May, 1738, the traditional date of his conversion. I wouldn't like to say that Wesley wasn't saved. He was a believer in the gospel. He was a minister preaching the gospel. He didn't really understand it very much, but... Uh, did his best, and then he, then he did begin to understand it, begin, began to understand justification, began to preach it. People began to be saved under his preaching. And then there came that day, 24th of May, 1738, where he goes into a little fellowship. He hears someone reading from Luther, and he says, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I knew that I had been delivered from the law of sin and of death, and he, his whole life has changed. From that point on, he's a man of great power. I wouldn't want to think he was uh, not, uh, not safe before that time. But I think it's true to say that he wasn't clear about that time. He didn't have any clear understanding of the gospel. And uh, he used to meet the, with the Moravian brethren from Germany who did have a clear understanding of the gospel. And they would say to him, well, uh, have you come through yet? Do you really sort of believe in justification? And he would say, well, you know, I believe it, but, I, but I'm not sure that I'm really feeling it in my heart yet. 
And they would say to him, go on preaching it until you do feel it in your heart. And he did. He went on preaching it. And one day God sealed it to him. But the point I'm making is, if you don't really have a full grasp of the gospel, well, you might be saved, but you won't have much of the seeding of the Spirit, the witness of the Spirit, the power of the Spirit. You must be clear about grace and faith and salvation, that your righteousness is the righteousness of Jesus plus nothing. You stand before God in the name of Jesus in no other way. You must be clear about that. There must be something to be there to be sealed, having believed the gospel, the word of truth. God sealed us with the promised Holy Spirit, Ephesians 1, 13. It happened to Jesus. Remember when Jesus was being baptized. At the same time as Jesus was being baptized in water, as he came out of the water and he was praying, the Holy Spirit comes down upon him. At the same time, a voice comes from heaven. You are my son. You are my son. An assurance of sonship comes with the outpouring of the Spirit. Jesus already knew he was God's son. As a, as a child, he said, don't you know I must be about my father's business? He always knew he was God's son in a special way. But now there comes a doubling, a confirming, a double witness. You are my son. He knew already, but there comes something which doubly makes him sure as the man, son of God, become a man. And he goes, from that point on, he goes out in the power of the Lord. Luke chapter 4 and, and so on. He did not preach until he had known that. He didn't, he didn't begin his ministry until he had known something of this assurance of the voice of the Spirit coming from heaven upon him. And this is the great secret of ministry and of preaching or any other kind of gifts. Your gifts are, are to be empowered. Whatever gifts you've got, well, you have them even without the Spirit, but they're, they're just sort of potential. They are empowered by the outpouring of the Spirit. You shall receive power when the Spirit comes upon you, says Jesus. Then there's a third way of <coughs> receiving assurance, and I'm deliberately putting it third, although many people have a different order. The, the greater confessions of faith often say, well, you... you uh, have assurance by belief in the promise, you have uh, evidence that you're new, you're, born, you're born again, and then you have the witness of the Spirit. And they put the witness of the Spirit first, third, and the, the evidence of new life second. I'm deliberately changing the order, and I have a reason for that, which I will tell you about. There's a third way of re- receiving assurance, and that is you get confirmation, and I'm being careful how I put it, you get confirmation by the fact that you can see that you are not the person you used to be. Your life changes, and you can see that your life changes. Now, you, you must put this in the third place, and the reason why you must put it in the third place is if you put it in the first place, you've come back to justification by works. If you say, well, no, I know I'm a child of God because I, I love the brethren and I obey God and all of this, well, that's justification by works. You've come back to denying the gospel. No, you don't get justification by works, but you do get a kind of confirmation by works. You can say, well, I'm not the person I used to be. I know these blessings of mine are authentic because I can see what's happened in my life. So so there are these kind of confirmations. I would say, first of all, there's the confirmation of being brought to faith. And this is the point of that verse that I've already read to you, 1 John 5, 1 where John says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, has already been born of God. The fact that you've come to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, he's risen from the dead, he died upon the cross for your sins, 
He's the Son of God in the flesh. He has a real human nature. You, you, you know all that and you believe it. You're putting your trust in Jesus. Well, nobody can come to that position without the work of the Holy Spirit. If you, if you know you've been brought to that, you know you're born again. Those such people have been already born again. It's not that their, their faith led to their being born again. Actually, it's their being born again that led to their faith. Remember my saying, there's a work of the Spirit leading to faith, and there's a work of the Spirit which you get upon believing. And here in 1 John 5, John's got this way of saying something and then going behind it. Everybody who believes that Jesus is the Christ, and he goes behind it. How, how, did you, how did you come to believe it? Ah, well, the reason is you've been born of God. Everyone who comes to faith, the reason why he comes to faith, is this quickening, renewing birth of the Holy Spirit into your life has taken place. And you can say, well, I'm not what I ought to be, but I know I'm not what I was, and I, I know I was brought to this faith in Jesus. I just, I'm, a, I'm aware that God led me to believe in things I never used to believe in. This, this has to be that God's Spirit has been at work in me. That's the evidence that you have been indeed born again. Whereas, of course, John is writing to people who are pretending to be Christians, these Gnostic heretics, who do not believe that Jesus is the Son of God born in the flesh, and they are not born again. And John says the reason why we know that we, not they, are the ones who are born again is because we know that we have been led to put our faith in Jesus as the Son of God come in the flesh. That's, that's the work of the Spirit. Most people do not believe that. All sorts of people believe that, that there's a guy called Jesus died upon the cross many years ago. Most people believe that. Even atheists believe there's some fellow called Jesus. But they don't see him as the Lord. They don't see him as the Son of God. They don't see him as, as risen from the dead, the, the Son of God raised to be the king of the universe. They don't see that. But if you do see it, how comes you see it? Well, because God's been working in you. You know that's the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. So there's the confirmation of faith. Secondly, there is the confirmation of obedience. We know that we have known him. We look back on our experience and we know that we have known him because we keep his commandments. It's not that we, we, we are totally sinlessly righteous, but we do know that something has happened in our lives and that something has led us to, to want to obey God. By this we know, present tense, that we have come to know, past tense, him if we keep his commandments. We know now uh, that what has happened to us is genuine and real because the impact of it upon our lives is we're keeping his commandments now. Not that we're doing so perfectly, not that we're sinless. John says if anybody says he has no sin, he's deceiving himself. He's not, he's not encouraging us to believe in any kind of sinlessness, absolute. But um, we are led in the direction of obedience when God blesses us powerfully and mightily. And that tests our conversion it tests anything we claim is fellowship with God. Anything real from God will lead us in the direction of wanting to obey his commandments. And if you ask what his com commandments are, it's not um, the Mosaic law. It is the love commands of Jesus. He goes on to say, this is the commandment, that we, we love each other. The old commandment is the new commandment. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. The, what the commandment consists of is the, the new commandment that we love everybody everywhere. And then thirdly then, the third 
way of coming, salvation, coming to assurance of salvation is, is love. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brothers and sisters. When you know that you do enjoy and, and delight in God's people, you see people, they're not like you, they're not your tribe, they're not your nationality, they're not your temperament. Maybe you don't even like them. There's a difference between liking people and loving people. You can love people you don't like. You may not even like some person. But you say, well, you know, he's a brother. He's a sister. She's a sister in the Lord. And, you know, sometimes she annoys me a bit, but, but you know, she's one of God's people. And you have a kind of love for them just because they're one of God's people, just because they have been born again. They may not be like you in many ways. And as I say, in terms of an ordinary uh, affinity, you may not always like them. Uh, we, people we like depends a bit on what sort of people, person we are. But um, it's not liking, it's loving. And you do have a, a closeness to anybody, anywhere, that's been born again the way you have. You know how it is when you're, you're traveling somewhere and you're in some sort of airport or something. You're a thousand miles from home and you sit down with somebody and you discover he's safe. Immediately, there's a rapport that you have with him that you have with nobody else. And you only, you only met him ten seconds ago. Immediately, there's some sort of a affinity between you. Oh, yeah, how do you get saved? What church do you go to? And you, uh, Yeah, I love Jesus too. And you're, you're talking about the Lord in seconds. So you're, you're the best friends. Why? Because you've got something in common. Salvation from the blood of Christ. We know that we have passed from death to life because we do love the brethren, the brothers and sisters, not, not as much as we ought to, but we know there's something of a, a love for God's people put in us and that can only come from the new birth. We know that we have passed from death to life. But I put those things as confirmations. They're not first, you're not saving yourself by how much you love people. You're not saving yourself by how obedient you are. But they are confirmations that God has changed you. And you are not the person that you ought to be. And we should know something about all three of these things. We should know of our acceptance just by faith in the promises of God. We should know something of the sealing and the baptism with the Spirit. We should know something of these confirmations a little bit. I'm not trying to make it too high or too legalistic, but we must know something of God's working in our lives, changing us in this way. This is the, the biblical teaching concerning assurance. Well, let's make a start then on, on my next topic, which is our security of salvation. Now, I've only got 15 minutes or so to go, so we'll just start. But um, I believe that what we have in the Scriptures is an assurance that once we come to our first salvation, uh, what I mean by our first salvation is our being born again, our being justified, our being a child of God, uh, our being adopted by the Father, coming into his kingdom, that that initial salvation cannot be lost. It, we do not lose that. And I would argue it in three ways. Number one, the explicit statements. Number two, the implications of every kind of a doctrine there is in Scripture. All the other doctrines imp imply this doctrine, as, as we shall see in a second. Number three, by the nature of the warnings, or the particular warnings that are there, which in imply... Our, our security in salvation. First of all, there are explicit statements. You think of it in the Old Testament. I think one of the strongest is Jeremiah 32 and verse 40, when Jeremiah keeps on saying there'll be 
a new covenant. <coughs> and he says, I will make with them, the people of God in the latter days when the Saviour comes to Israel, I'll make with them a new covenant, an everlasting covenant. Here's a covenant. You know what a covenant is? It's when God takes an oath. And once God takes an oath, there can be no change. A covenant but from, from God is unbreakable. That's what a covenant is. I will make with them an everlasting covenant. Here's something which is a covenant. It is explicitly said to be everlasting. What is it? That I will not turn away from doing good to them, and I will so put the fear of me in them that they may not turn from me. A covenant which is unbreakable, unlike the covenant of law, which can be broken, unlike the covenant of Moses, which can be broken, a covenant which cannot be broken, unlike the Mosaic Covenant, which is an everlasting covenant. On the one side, I will not turn from them, and they will not turn from me. I don't know how you could put it any more strongly. If you wanted to put it in a stronger way, how would you do it? What stronger way is there of saying there's a promise which can't be broken, it's two ways, you won't turn from me, he will not turn from you. What stronger language could you ever find anywhere than that? Language fails if that does not teach that there's a covenant in which we are totally and utterly secure. And then we have it all over John's Gospel. John is the one who's specially emphasizing this. Uh, All whom the Father gives to me will come to me. Uh, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up at the last day. It's referring to the, the resurrection to glory. In the last day when people get raised to glory, it's not not any sort of resurrection, but the resurrection to glory. In the last day, I, I will raise them up. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing. I shall lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up, the whole, the whole people of God, but raise it up on the last day. Here's a, an explicit statement that Jesus will lose nothing of all that the Father gives to him. And there's a doctrine of predestination there because the implication is that you belong to God in some sense even before you came to Jesus. Thine they were and you gave them to me. There's a sense in which they belonged to God even before you came. You were already God's elect even before you believed. You, they, were, they were yours. You already had them in mind. And you gave them to me. I'm quoting John 17. And I have given them your word and I'm not going to lose any of them. There is, Nicod- there is uh, Judas, but uh, he's not one of them. I will lose none of all that you have given to me, John 17. And John 10 is the same. It keeps on coming back in John 6, but it comes again and again in John 10. Uh, I give them eternal life. They'll never perish. No one will pluck them from my hand. I'll bring, there's even others who haven't been saved yet. I'll bring those. They'll all be one, and uh, I give them eternal life. John chapter 10, verse 28. And they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. They're in Christ's hand. They're in the Father's hand. The Father and the Son are working together. They're one in their purpose and they're both agreed and unanimous that together they will keep the child of God and none of them will be lost. You you can hardly find stronger statements than that. And then you have the same teaching 
in Romans, it's in John 17 as well, um, I quoted already, and then in Romans chapter 8, where, as I was saying to you a little while back, the point is that there's no condemnation ever, and it all ends up with the argument from predestination. Uh, those whom God has set his love on, the word foreknow means to, to set the love on the person. Notice it doesn't say those whom he foreknew that they would believe. That's not there. People sometimes take it that way, but those words are not there. It's not the faith that is foreknown. It is the person who is foreknown. Those people upon whom I have set my knowledge. Of course, God knows everybody. But there are certain people upon whom God has set his knowledge in a special way. The word know sometimes means to love. Sometimes even means love sexually. Adam knew Eve, to which you might say, yeah, of course he did. But it's referring to something sexual. Uh, To set, to know somebody is to set your love on them in a special way. Sometimes it's even used sexually. But here it's used of God's foreknowledge. He's setting his love on us in advance. Those people whom he has foreknown in this particular way, those people he has predestined them to be conformed to Jesus. Not just predestined to salvation, but predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus, to become like Jesus. His salvation, but it's, but it's, just, it's more than just initial salvation. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. If I can reduce the, the, the scale of numbers... I can put it like this. Imagine there's a hundred people that God has set his love on them. How many, how many does he plan to make like Jesus? Answer, one hundred. If there are one hundred people whom God has predestined to be conformed to his son, how many does he call, bring to salvation? Answer, one hundred. If there's one hundred people who are called, who come to faith, how many are justified? One hundred. You can't believe and not be justified. If there are a hundred people who are justified, how many are glorified? One hundred. How many fall out along the way? None. It's a kind of chain. If you've got A, they've got B. If you've got B, they've got C. If you've got C, they've got D. If you've got D, they've got E. If they're if chosen from the foundation of the world, they brought all the way to glory, and at no point do they fall out along the way. They get every one of those five stages of being brought from God's plan to final glory, that no stage that they fall out. And as I say, that's the last argument Paul uses. He brings that in at the end. He didn't bring it that in at the beginning. But finally, that's his last, his last argument to convince us there is no condemnation ever to those who are in Christ. We cannot lose our salvation. Why, does, why should anybody ever doubt that? We'll go on to work it out a bit more tomorrow. But why should anybody ever doubt that? Well, I think there are two reasons why people say, well, you know, I'm not sure I can really believe that. I think one reason is people say, ah, yes, but there are other scriptures on the other side. Um, You know, maybe there's all these wonderful scriptures, but you have to take account into other scriptures which talk about falling away. Well, when you get uh, scriptures that seem to contradict or maybe have got slightly different angles of approach what do you do do you say well there's a contradiction in scripture or do you say well I just have to live with the mystery it's a bit difficult to believe both that you can and that you can't fall away you can't live with those two things sometimes you can live with two things that are contradictory Jesus is God Jesus is man 
can believe both of those things even though you can't fit them together. God is one, God is three. You, you can live with both of those things. But some things you can't live with. I can, I can lose my salvation, I can't lose my salvation. You can't live with that. It, it's, too, it's too blunt and sharp a contradiction. If you try to believe those two things at the same time, it'll be that you can lose your salvation that wins. The insecure aspect will, will as it were, triumph. The other possibility is that you've got something wrong somewhere, that one side or the other doesn't quite mean what you, think it, what you thought it meant. Maybe these verses don't mean what, what they seem to mean. But it's hard to see how they can mean anything else. I will lose no one. It's not a difficult sentence. It's quite easy. So it's hard to see that they can mean anything else. It's the warnings that need to be reconsidered. When you look at the warnings, go and look at those warnings. I think you will find there are no warnings about losing justification. Is there a warning somewhere? If you do this and this and this, you will be condemned after all. At the judgment seat, you will be condemned. Is there a warning like that? No, it's the other way around. It is Christ who died. It is God who justifies. Who can be, who can condemn? There's no warning. On the contrary, it's the other way around. There's an assurance. Is there a warning? Well, if you're not careful, the new birth will be taken away from you. Is, is that warning there somewhere? No, you, you can't find that warning. It's the other way around. His seed abides in him. The warning's an assurance, not a warning, an assurance. Is there a warning that somehow you'll cease to be a child of God? No, that warning doesn't exist. The warnings are not warnings about sonship or about justification or about loss of new birth. If you go and look at their warnings, they're, they're warnings about rewards. Everybody runs in a race, only one man gets the prize. I beat my body black and blue, lest after having run, I, I should be rejected. Rejected for what? Rejected for the prize. The, the warning is about reward. Not that I've attained yet this one thing I do. I want to apprehend. I'm looking for the, 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 the prize of the high calling of, 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 of God in Christ. These, these uh, passages are about reward. Or they're about experiencing the kingdom, which is not quite the same as heaven. Those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom. And the word inherit always means uh, get a reward, get back something that you, you're wanting to inherit the promises and you, you could lose them. They're not warnings about justification or status in salvation. They're warnings about uh, inheritance and reward, your experience of blessing, your usefulness, you're enjoying the kingdom of God, you're being able to serve God and bring fruit. They're warnings against fruit about fruitfulness. Uh, I've, you've not chosen me, I've chosen you, that you should go forth and, and, and get fruit. Abide in me, abide in me. If any man does not abide in me, he'll be put in the rubbish dump and, and thrown under the fire. But is Jesus telling his disciples how to get saved? Is John 17 saying, well, I'm telling you how to get saved? No, surely not. He's saying, I've chosen you to go and bear forth fruit. You're going off on your ministry. If you will not abide in me, you'll be useless. You'll be put on a burning rubbish dump. It, it, what's lost is not salvation but uh, the possibility of ministry. There are all sorts of warnings like that. There's collective warnings. If a church will not abide, I'll, I'll take the lampstand away. If Israel will not go on believing, I'll remove them from the, from, from the olive tree. It's not about any person losing salvation. It's about a community no longer having the power that the previous generation had. Plenty of warnings out there, many, many, many warnings, but they're not warnings about justification or sonship those things are not the subject of warning because there's nothing to warn. You cannot lose those things. There cannot be warnings about such things. So you don't have to worry about the warnings. Look at them closely. They don't actually ever threaten the very essence of initial salvation.
And the other thing is, well, you know, I, I knew so-and-so. He was such a great Christian, and he, he was a preacher, and he did this and this, this, and he, and he ran away with the secretary and stole the offering and did something wicked, and uh, I'm sure he, he lost it, and, and uh, he, he blew his salvation. The other problem is when we know people, or we think we know people, who seem to be such great Christians. To which I answer, don't be so confident in your powers of interpretation. I mean, Judas did not know the Lord Jesus ever. Jesus knew from the beginning who would betray him. Jesus said, you are all clean except one of you. There was one who never was clean with the washing of regeneration. Yes, you couldn't have picked him out. You couldn't have said, well, Judas is not really saved. You couldn't have said that. They went out two by two, and they all came back saying, the spirits are subject unto us. Judas was used by God. And when Jesus says, one of you will betray me, no one said, yeah, I think it's going to be Judas. <laughs> they just said, oh, who is that? You know, who, is he die? Is he die? No one had the slightest idea who it would be. Judas was indistinguishable from the other 11. No one could tell that Judas was a bit different, but he was different. He never sincerely had faith. And, uh, well, we can say a bit more about that tomorrow. But uh, now, those are the only two reasons why people have trouble with this. We all tend to be legalistic. We all tend to almost want to be insecure. We even argue against our security, which is a very strange thing to do, really. We even argue about how much we might lose something. Why should we argue against our security? Very strange thing to do. But that's the way we're made. We are sceptical by nature. We have to be persuaded by the Spirit. Those assurances are there. They mean what they say. The warnings are about other things. You know, some people fall away. Maybe they're not saved. Maybe, maybe they never were saved, like, like Judas. And we can't be so sure. I'll say more about that tomorrow. There's more than one kind of backslider. But don't let difficulties of interpretation make you feel insecure. The fact that you can't understand some guy who went off and did strange things, don't let that, that, that make you feel insecure. You have the promises. No condemnation to those who are in Christ. Neither life nor death nor things present nor things to come or anything else in all creation should be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Says Romans 8. So let's stand and pray tonight. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for our great security in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that when we are faithless, he is faithful when we wander, you hold on to us. That when we are out of the way, you come after us. When we fall down, you pick us up. Thank you, Lord, for the way in which you hold on to your people and pray that they'll never cease to believe. Pray, Lord, that we may come into assurance that we have this salvation now and forever. Please work this in our hearts. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 God bless you.